Matthew chapter 4, starting at verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Amen. Heaven is closer than you think. Part two. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, gracious King, we ask that your presence would be in this place and that we would be aware of it today. Father, I pray that every need would be met. God, I pray that we would be challenged and called and brought to a new awareness, Lord, of you and how you are working in our lives Father, I pray that if there be any principality or power of darkness that does not belong in this place and that would exalt itself against what you want to do here, we rebuke it in the name of Jesus and we cast it out. It must leave. We pray it in Jesus' name. And if you believe that, would you say amen? Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Didn't do this before I read my text, but I really do want to say that it is a great honor to preach behind this pulpit again this evening it was this morning and I didn't say that this morning either I'm not very good with those uh you know those little things you're supposed to do uh but uh Pastor Lehman thank you for uh allowing me this opportunity everyone's just been so hospitable we didn't expect any less of course um this church has that reputation and uh Pastor Woodward as well for opening up the pulpit here I really do appreciate it I give honor to all the leadership here, and I really appreciate it. Some years ago, an elderly man, late 80s by this time, if my memory serves me well, walked down the aisle of this very church on a Sunday, very slowly, with the help of a cane, all the way to the front of the room. He was noticeably tall, white hair, Neatly trimmed crew cut, always. He always had a bit of an inquisitive frown on his face. At least it seemed that way to me. Now that he's gone, I can say that. I'm not sure why. Maybe he was perplexed by the lights or thought that the music was too loud. Maybe the temperature in the church was a little warmer 
the normal or cooler. Or more likely, he just missed his late wife, Olive, whom he spoke of often and lovingly. He missed her a lot. Talked about her all the time. He was especially proud of how she cleaned this church. One particular Sunday morning, he was greeted by a group of young ladies. University students struck up a conversation with them. And for at least one of those girls, I would argue the most beautiful of them, but I'm sure someone would disagree because there were other pretty girls in that group too. The conversation developed into a friendship, one that I got to enjoy after I married Melissa. The man's name was Sid. Many of you probably remember him. He passed away quite a few years ago now, but Melissa and I got to spend a bit of time with him in his later years while we were still living here, hopefully curbing some of his loneliness during our visits. He, I don't know how many know this, but he even attended our very first service in Shediac. He was there. He'd promised he would do it. And I mean, I could see him. I'm like, oh, that's a tough trip. But he did it. He was there. In all of those times that Mel and I spent some time with him, Sid would tell, I'm quite certain it was every time, the story of how he gave his life to the Lord. With tears filling his eyes and reaching for that Kleenex box on the kitchen table, he would recount how from that day on, he never craved for another cigarette or drink of alcohol. Sid knew that on that particular day, something had changed him. He encountered a power, I believe it was overseas in Germany, that was transformative and he never forgot it. And still, Sid was quick to tell plenty of other stories that highlighted that he was not perfect from that day on. And although God immediately adjusted him on some fronts in his life, there were others that needed a lifetime of addressing. And I think all of us can attest to that tension of I am saved and I am being saved. One of the major things that we believe about the presence of God is that it changes us. Yes? We can call our faith distinctive for many reasons, but at the heart of it is this idea that God can save us from ourselves and save us from our sin. That he can transform us. But there are 
Two really important ideas that I have learned about the nature of faith and transformation over the past few years. And I think you've, you probably realize them as well. And I want to share them with you today. Number one is this. I've realized that we are changing. Every day. There's this old saying. It's, I think it's probably a scientific fact. I'm not really sure, but that every cell in our body is different every seven years or something like that. So literally, physically, you are a different person entirely every seven years. Change is inevitable. We can't avoid it. Every situation in life is changing us. Every voice we listen to and influence we allow is changing us for better or for worse. And there are plenty of influences and plenty of voices. Social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, I've lost track of what else there is. Popular culture, news feeds, unhealthy relationships, people's opinions of us, trauma from your past, dysfunctional family situations. The list goes on and on. We allow this ongoing transformation to happen to us often unconsciously. And that leads me to the second thing that I've realized about the nature of faith and transformation, and it is this. We must be intentional about transformation. When you are flippant about influences in your life, what you become will be the product of flippancy. I looked it up. It's a word. <laughs> Frivolous is a synonym. And the product of that is dysfunction and disorder. It's like, it's like this. It's like planting a flower and then leaving it in a dark corner and expecting it to grow. You're expecting it to be healthy. You're expecting it to produce fruit, but you leave it in the dark corner. It's not going to happen. You have to move that flower into conditions that are right for growth. And so here's how the narrative often goes. I go to church on Sunday, and I experience the presence of God. I am changed, transformed, encouraged, and fed. I go to the altar. I renew my commitment. God sets me free, so I say, from the things that have held me captive. I begin to see myself as a part of the story that God is telling beautifully. I, I, I sense that I'm an exodus person, out of slave, slavery to sin, out of all that life, rescued by the hand of God. I, I catch a glimpse of that light when I go to church, when I meet with God's people. But then, for the other six days of the week, the bulk of my life, I find myself going back to the same addictions, back to the same thought patterns, back to the same habits, back to the dark corner of the house where I begin to wither under the weight and responsibility of life. I especially think, I especially want to address, I should say, the people who experience the altar of commitment on Sunday like a revolving door. People who believe in Jesus, believe that he died 
and rose again, that he lives today and would say that unequivocally with confidence, but find themselves still mostly angry, mostly depressed, hurt, addicted, anxious, distant, doubting, unmotivated, and disappointed with life. To use the plant analogy once more, there is more light available to you than the weekly service schedule. Remember, heaven is closer than you think. So Jesus in the wilderness. Read the text here a few minutes ago. This is such an important moment in what Jesus is setting out to do. It's just after his baptism. It's, it's such an important moment. He's, he's been affirmed as the beloved son. And, and the spirit is present falls on him at his baptism, and the Spirit then directs him to the wilderness. I've always been a little bit perplexed in some way by that. But I think I've sort of started to learn something a little bit, and I want to share it with you. There's so much happening in this moment, and for those attuned to the Scriptures, this this paragraph is rife with Scriptural images. Forty days, right? 40 days in the wilderness and he's hungry. Doesn't that sound familiar? Israel was 40 years in the wilderness and they complained a lot about being hungry. So much so that they wanted to go back to the life that they'd come from. And God provides manna, this miraculous food, which I find is so funny. It just means, what is it? You gotta love that, the humor, eh? What is it? What are we going to call it? Well, what is it? That seems like a good name. Not the name of my first, second, or third child. What is it? (laughs) 40 days in the wilderness, and Jesus is hungry. Like the 40 years that Israel spent complaining in the wilderness, and they are provided miraculous bread from heaven. And then Jesus responds to the first temptation that the devil gives him and he says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He's tempted in the garden by the serpent. That's the first Adam. He's tempted by the devil in the wilderness. That's the last Adam. Isn't that interesting? What a contrast. The devil is attempting to get Jesus to shortcut his way to what his human desire should want. Jesus then resists the temptation because God's word matters more to him than those desires. That's how it boils down, right? The human desires that we believe Jesus had, he was in all points tempted like us, yet without sin. He he chose God's way, God's word above that. He valued it more. He resists the temptations with the word of God. And I've always looked at this passage as it stands there in in all of its importance for our understanding of Jesus as showing the spirit, bringing Jesus into a place of weakness. I think that's what it looked like to me for so long. And Maybe I'm sharing something with you that you've seen a really long time ago, but for so long it looked to me that the 40 days in the wilderness without eating was 
to weaken Jesus, to, to show us just how strong and capable he is as the Lord, even at his weakest. But I'm not sure about that now. And I, and I have to allow for the possibility, what if Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to prepare for the temptations? It's 40 days before the devil showed up. Now, I don't know if he was watching from a distance. I don't know if he was waiting until he thought Jesus was at his weakest or if the spirit led him into the wilderness long before knowing when the devil was going to come, led him into the wilderness to prepare for that encounter. I'm not sure anymore. But what if Jesus was led there to prepare for the temptations, that while his human desires were weakened, which had to be true, but his spiritual power was heightened. What if the wilderness was not a place of weakness, but the place of power? And I think that's the case. So this makes the wilderness the perfect place for this showdown with the devil to happen because there's a really ironic thing happening. And again, I'm, I'm thinking this, but the irony of it is that from the devil's perspective, he was going after Jesus at his weakest and he may very well have been dealing with Jesus at his strongest. Funny how that happens. The wilderness. What a place. I don't know if there's any... If there's any outdoorsy type folks in here this evening, I love the wilderness. But this Greek word is interesting. It's a Greek word, eromos, eromos. And it appears quite a bit in the New Testament, specifically in connection with Jesus. And this is not a place that would be unfamiliar for Jesus. He went there often and he invited his disciples to go with him there. And it can mean wilderness, but it also is translated elsewhere as the quiet place, the solitary place, the desolate place. Here's a quick spattering of these occurrences. I just want to go through them quickly and take a look at some of the highlights. Mark chapter 1, verse 35, right at the beginning of Mark's gospel. And it says this, And in the morning... Rising up a great while before day, he went out and departed into a solitary place and there prayed. That's the Eremos. This is just following a day or more of miracles and ministering to people. Jesus wakes up before everyone, long before the day begins to go to the Eremos. I'm going to call it this as well, because I'm trying to find a way of saying eromos without having to say that Greek word every time, so you're not looking at me like I have four heads. It's the away from the crowd place. And he goes there to pray. Mark chapter 6, verse 30, another occurrence. It says, then the apostles gathered to Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. This is after he'd sent them out to do uh, many works. Uh, and um, they're coming back and they've got these reports. Verse 31, and he said to them, I don't, know, I don't know what you're expecting him to say. Oh, great job, buddy. Good to hear. Praise God. But he doesn't say that. He says, come aside by yourselves to a deserted place. 
I'm sure they nudged each other and they're like, oh, there's super spiritual Jesus again. Come aside to a deserted place. Yeah, that sounds tempting. A deserted place and rest a while. Rest a while. For there were many coming and going, the scripture says, and they did not even have time to eat. So they departed to a deserted place in the boat by themselves. So this deserted place, you need a boat to go there. Here the apostles had been sent out to preach the kingdom. Not just to preach it, but to do many great miracles as signs of the kingdom being near. And when they get back, they're excited to tell Jesus about all that had happened. Jesus says, let's take some time and go to the Eremos. Let's get away from the crowd and go to the deserted place to be closer to the Father. Just a few paragraphs later, Mark 6, verse 45. And straightway, he constrained his disciples to get into the ship and to go to the other side before unto Bethsaida while he sent away the people. And when he sent them away, he departed into a mountain to pray. And when even was come, the ship was in the midst of the sea and he alone on the land. Now, this particular instance here follows the feeding of the 5,000. Another great miracle amazing thing that God has done in Christ. And Jesus is intent on getting away from the crowd. The eremos, that Greek word, is not mentioned here, but it's the same principle. Can you see it? There's, there's the work of the kingdom. There's showing it, not just saying it, but showing it. But then Jesus is intent on getting away, this time to a mountain to pray. We're seeing a pattern here, aren't we? Jesus was always prepared to minister, always ready to preach and demonstrate the new reality of the kingdom. We talked about that a little bit this morning, right? We talked about how he would say it and show it. He was always ready to do that. He believed that heaven was close and he wanted to show it, but he never neglected the quiet place of prayer. I wonder if these two things are connected. Luke 5, verse 15, jumping over to a different gospel here, but I like the way Luke puts it because it kind of gives us another taste of how consistent Jesus was with this. Verse 15 says, But so much more went there of a fame abroad of him, and great multitudes came together to hear and to be healed by him of their infirmities. Now, I don't know about you, but that looks like success. I mean, that's, that's what we would call success, right? And a lot of times we just want to drink that in. And Jesus says, and Jesus does this. He withdrew himself into the wilderness and prayed. Other translations of this verse in particular say that he would often go to the wilderness. He would go there often to the solitary place to pray. This was something Jesus did consistently. And he didn't just do it, but he taught it. In fact, it's at the center of his famous Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. And I I find it interesting that it's placed near the middle. And I'll be honest, I didn't do the counts or anything like that. But in the Hebrew mind, there's, there's a way of doing poetry that's called the chiasm. 
And, and um, really the way that that works is you'll have corresponding lines on either side of a body of text, but it's the very middle. Everything builds up to it and then kind of unwinds itself, but the focus is in the middle. And I find it really interesting that this is situated near the middle. And verse 5 says, when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. I know. We've become familiar. We've become quite used to this verse, I think. But we really, church, need to take a good look at our life and see if we are neglecting the secret place. Because when things get, start to get a little sideways in our society or in our community or maybe even in the church, we start looking at leadership. We start looking at the person across the aisle. And we see all the success. I mean, this is a great example. This is a church that has a great heritage. This is a church that has a great history and amazing things have happened. And the, the impact of this church is far beyond this region. Amen? And I'm thankful for that today. But if things start to get sideways at some point, where are we supposed to look? I mean, if you would call this a reward... How do you think it was that those who came before us got the reward? And it wasn't by having the best programs. It wasn't by having all the I's dotted and the T's crossed. As far as I'm reading it in the scripture, the, the open reward happens when you go into the secret place. And so if we're looking around here, here in this context in the bricks and mortar building for the answer, for a revival, for the answer for our community, we're going to be looking for a really long time. Because the Bible tells me that it is in the secret place that the reward comes out in the open. You've got to be willing to do some things. You've got to be willing to Get alone with God. There's a phrase. I used to hear that. I don't hear it as much. Isn't this just exactly the predicament? It's kind of like what we were talking about at the end of the service this morning and then, and then at the beginning of when I was talking here a few minutes ago. And I'll put it this way. If the majority of your prayer life happens on Sunday then you must seriously consider whether Matthew 6, 5 describes you. And I mean, like, I don't, look, come talk to me after. I'm not a mean guy. I'm really not. You got to trust me. And so I don't know why. Sometimes I get behind the pulpit and it's like, oh, am I sounding angry? Like, I'm not, I am, but I'm not. It's not personal. It's just, it's, once I see it, I can't unsee it. And, and I'm trying to get you to see it. So maybe you're seeing it anyway. I don't know. But just, just walk with me here for a second. Jesus calls these people hypocrites. 
Now you know why I was worried about being angry. Jesus calls these people hypocrites, and none of us want to be called that. But take a good look for a second. How is it that you're going about that reward that you're looking for? Are you still looking in the altar here? Listen, I'm not, I'm not saying that you don't get rewarded for coming and meeting God in an altar. We talked about that. There's a step of faith. There's power in, in us being together in community and the fellowship of the faith and all of that. But if this is where it ends, there's a problem. And if we want to look for change, real, substantive, robust change in your life, in your family's life, in your school, at your workplace, in government, problems in the world that we're facing, we can't just anoint masks here and not think about it the rest of the week. We've got to find the secret place. Because there's a reward promised. Heaven is closer than you think. On Monday. Heaven is closer than you think. On Monday. You don't have to wait a week to experience the presence of God again. Sometimes we wonder where God went. And I'm sure he's wondering, where did you go? I've been here the whole time. Where have you been? I never went anywhere. Lo, lo, behold, I am with you always. Where'd you go? The Spirit is drawing you into the wilderness. Not the wilderness out in the woods somewhere. I mean, if that's your place, go. But the Spirit is calling you into the secret place. The Spirit is calling you into a place of quiet where you hear from your Father His heartbeat where you get close to heaven so that it'll rub off on you a little bit. Oh, wouldn't you like that? That's how we feel here. Heaven is closer than you think. Okay, let's get practical here for a second. I know Sunday night, I don't know what your expectations were. Um, I try my best not to have any, but I try to read into what you might be expecting, and I think I'm missing it by a big shot tonight, okay? Is that okay? Let's get really practical here for a second. Why? Why get away and pray, right? Like, it doesn't seem fun. I feel like watching Netflix would be more fun. You know, if I'm going to rest, I feel like binge-watching Netflix with a bag of chips is my kind of rest, you know? We're not talking about that kind of rest either. I'll explain that in a second. But how does the secret place of prayer help? What does it do? What does solitude with God actually do? I'm a big believer in, you know, the Bible has commands, and I think that you should obey commands in the Scriptures, yes, just because God said so. I I do believe that. But I also believe that God is the absolute most rational and logical being that there is. And so he knows exactly how, to, how, how life should be. He knows how to uh, put it together so that you'd have a successful life, you know? He knows what really matters. And so you, you shouldn't just do it because he said so, but because you really believe he probably knows what he's talking about. And so let, let's look at it for a second. Why, why would getting away into a secret place with God be beneficial? 
Six things I want to give you tonight. Reasons, things that this type of prayer does. Number one, rest. You know, some people are energy vampires. You ever met one? They suck the energy right out of you. And that... (laughs) It only took one service for me to get comfortable. Watch out. (laughs) Don't look across the aisle now, please. But it's it's nothing personal. None of us are perfect. And so we might not even know the configuration of who we annoy or whose energy we drain. And it doesn't matter. You don't have to look at it that way. Everybody needs some time to rest. It's just a fact. It's built into the nature of reality as God made it. Sabbath, right? God rested. <laughs> you probably should. But, but this rest, you know, being around people, no matter who you are, introvert, extrovert, ambivert, you will eventually get exhausted. And Jesus, here's the thing about Jesus getting away from the crowd. He didn't wander off aimlessly into the forest somewhere, skipping and smelling roses and all of this stuff. Well, I mean, he might have did that, but it wasn't aimless. The rest that he experienced was spiritual and intentional. There was a spiritual element here. And it's obvious. And he was going to pray. He wasn't just going for no reason, just to get away. He wasn't just introverted. He was going to pray. It was intentional and it was spiritual. Rest. And the rest that God can give you is better than the rest that Netflix can give you. Yeah, it's like an amen hand, but it's also like a high five. An air high five, thank you. Rest. Rest. You know, the scriptures say that the Holy Ghost is rest. But you got to give yourself time to bask in that. You got to give yourself time to be baptized again. Hmm? Filled with his spirit, freshly and anew. Rest. Number two, prayer. Why do I get away? What is it for? Well, it's for prayer. I mean, that probably should have been number one, but that doesn't mean we always speak. Prayer can be especially helpful when we plan to listen, believe it or not. And the solitude aspect, what I love about that, the fact that we are getting away, is that it cuts out distractions, or it should. It helps us focus. We can gain insight from the one place that matters more than any else, and that is at the feet of Jesus. That's somehow, sometimes how I picture it. You know, the disciples had the privilege and the pleasure of sitting at the feet of the master and learning. And when I sit there in the morning, sometimes I just get that urge. I'm just gonna sit on the floor today because I wanna learn. I wanna have my ears open to what the spirit is saying in this place because I'm going to face things today that I'm not ready for. I'm going to face things today that I don't have the strength to overcome in my own power, but I'm listening for the Spirit. He that has ears, let them hear what the Spirit is saying. 
It also gives us number three, perspective. This happens because, well, physically, we go up the mountain to pray, so to speak. Jesus did it, and I love that story because he leaves the disciples. They go out into the sea, and of course, that's when the storm comes on the sea. And he can see them because he's on the mountain praying. And prayer works like that in our lives. We're not in the middle of it all the time because when you're in the middle of it, it's very easy to get anxious. It's very easy to make rash decisions. But the perspective of prayer makes you ease into those stormy situations in life because you've been with the Father. You've touched heaven. And so earth doesn't, earth doesn't seem so far away either. And you can begin to influence things in the way that the Spirit would have you influence things. Prayer and solitude gives us perspective. Number four. It, it addresses our availability problem. What do I mean by that? Well, I'll start by saying this. When you go before God into the quiet place, don't bring your phone. How many have done it? I mean, don't show me your hand. If, but, but how many have done it? You've set yourself up, you know, ready for the meeting God here in the quiet place. But your phone's a little too close. And what do you go for? Oh, shoot, there's that, there's that vibration. Oh, no. What happened? Breaking news. Oh, somebody liked my picture. Oh, I'm validated. I've been affirmed. Yay. Dopamine. We're such a slave to that. You know, and I think, I think we often reach for the thing that gives us comfort, right? Because it's a little uncomfortable to sit there in the presence of God sometimes. And there's nothing we can reach for and there's nothing we can go to. We just got to sit at his feet in his majesty, in his presence. And that can be a little uncomfortable, this little. So don't bring your phone. One of the reasons that there's more anxiety and depression among our teenagers today, as well as adults, we always talk about young people in this, but really it's adults as well now. I think it's because we are never unavailable. Never unavailable. We must unplug if we are going to survive spiritually. I know. That's crazy, right? But I really think it has an effect on our spirituality. We must get alone with God. We must turn off the distractions for a time and only be available to our Heavenly Father. People are constantly reaching out. And you know what? We can pass it off as being a noble thing. Well, I've got friends who need me. Friends who need me to witness to them even, you know? Problem is, is we're waiting for a reward that is only born in the secret place. The availability problem is addressed in the secret place. Number five, the performance problem is addressed in the secret place. We must acknowledge that even our prayers can become about performance. Our lives, in, and, and Jesus saw this coming, didn't he? That's Matthew 6, by the book. Our lives in general become about performance. This is connected, I think, to the availability problem because we're never disconnected. 
As believers, we want to be there for our friends in their times of need. We want to be the one that people call on when they are sick or in emotional chaos or whatever. And now more than ever, we can be. Social media is performance-based. That's how it's designed. These people behind these social media outlets, they've done the research. They know what works. Did anyone just get a hit of dopamine? (laughs) Society runs on performance, but in solitude, we simulate the reality of the end. That's why it's uncomfortable, because at the end, you won't have a phone to reach for. At the end, it'll be just you, stripped of all the masks that you wear and things that you tend to hide behind. And then the performance doesn't matter anymore. It's only, did you know him and did he know you? Does the scripture not say that many will come to him on that day and say, did we not perform well in your name? And he will say, I never knew you. (sighs) Sorry, guys. I wasn't paying attention to your Facebook page. I never knew you. I never sat in your living room with you. I never got to talk to you at the kitchen table. I was waiting, but you never came. Sorry, I missed the notification about how amazing you were at this and at that when you spoke when you sang, whatever, but I never knew you. And six, the power problem is addressed in the secret place. I've been hinting at this one over and over again, but I'll just say it to reiterate it. You can be available all you want. And you can find yourself in situations where someone needs to be prayed for or someone needs to be encouraged by a thoughtful word or whatever. You can be available all you want via text, via email, via FaceTime, via person-to-person, that antiquated thing that we used to do. You can be available all you want, but if you have not had time in the wilderness, if you have not had time in the desolate place, if you have not had time in solitude with God, you will have nothing to offer those who are in need. Nothing really transformative anyway. We can do the same thing and you can pass off an encouraging word, but I wonder what the difference maker is in situations like that. I wonder what what it is about some people that when they speak, it just seems to pierce right into your soul. I bet you they have a secret place. And we feel like we're banging our head off the wall trying to figure out how, how I can bring, encourage this person. They're depressed and I want them to get better and I feel so helpless and there's no secret place in your life. But that's where the reward is. Not angry. But I'm a little bit burdened. 
Jesus knew if he wanted to serve and to empty himself, there had to be something there to empty out. And in the wilderness, away from the crowd, away from the noise, and many voices that call for our attention, we get filled. And we come into contact with his presence because he's there. The trouble is our awareness. Heaven is closer than you think. I'm confident today that one of the biggest reasons that Jesus could say with certainty that the kingdom of heaven was at hand. That's what I talked about this morning. I'm confident that he, was, he knew that with certainty because he would continually left the crowd and returned to the quiet place of prayer and found it out to be true. He knew it because he lived it. And so he could go back out in authority. He could go back out and, and heal the sick and open blinded eyes. I know he's the son of God. I get that. But we're not supposed to just listen to what he said. We're supposed to do what he did. Jesus knew that when we pray, there is a heaven and earth thing happening. That's why he taught his disciples to pray the way he did. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. On earth as it is in heaven. Heaven is closer than you think. When you pray as Jesus taught to pray, you are inviting the rule and reign of heaven to come down to earth. You realize that? That's how he taught us to pray. When you pray as Jesus taught, you are inviting heaven to meet earth for the reality of heaven to be realized on earth. That's big. That's huge. In your situation, in your circumstance, in your difficulty. Let me, let me back up here a second. Maybe it seems a little theologically abstract to keep talking about heaven and earth, but let me say it again. When you pray as Jesus taught, you are inviting heaven to meet your situation. You're inviting heaven to meet your circumstance. You're inviting heaven to meet your difficulty. That is transformative. Regardless of what position you take on the temptation of Jesus in the Eremos, in the wilderness, place of weakness or place of strength, which is interesting because Paul said that his strength is made perfect in our weakness. Anyway, so maybe it doesn't even matter. But you can't ignore the outcome of that whole encounter. Three temptations, and he says, away with you, Satan. And in verse 11, it says this, then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Oh, I love that. What was it that Jesus found in the Eremos? Well, it wasn't that he found other things trying to comfort him. And you'll find that too. You'll be distracted all the time. You'll get into that quiet place and all kinds of things will start coming into your mind about other things you can be doing, things that you've forgotten to do, and people that you need to answer on your Twitter feed or whatever. It'll happen, guaranteed. And when Jesus was in that quiet place, that wilderness place, he faced temptation. Three of them in particular, pretty big ones. 
But the outcome was this. Angels came and ministered to him. And once he got through the temptations, through the word of God and the power of the word of God, angels came and ministered to him. The outcome of being in the wilderness, the outcome of being in the quiet place was that the things of heaven came to earth. That's the pattern, isn't it? Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done here on earth as in heaven. Angels came and ministered to him. Angels from heaven. Things from heaven had come down to earth. Heaven is closer than you think. Heaven is as close as the quiet place. Let's stand today as the music comes back. tell you, when Melissa and I moved to Shediac, I was just like any other young man, well, probably too young, if I'm being honest, but they let me do it. <laughs> As we walked into that situation, and I remember going up to the first time we had service and had this sandwich board triangle church sign. Man, I felt like Neil Armstrong on the moon when I planted that thing down. This is God's territory. Yeah. I have big aspirations, big church, probably often using CCC as the pattern. I'm like, we're going to have like a CCC-like church, you know, five, two, three years. Now we still run, I don't know, 30 to 40. I don't put too much stake in numbers. I sure wish there were a lot more. Don't get me wrong. We're working day in and day out. Great people around us. Fantastic, actually. Couldn't ask for better. Had all these aspirations about how to build a church. and I'd been taught certain things about how to build a church and took leadership courses and read books and all that stuff. And somewhere along the line, I'm going to be honest with you, transparent with you, I missed Matthew 6. I was waiting for a reward, and I was in the wrong place. I was, and I'm not saying that leadership books and classes and all that, that's all beneficial. Don't get me wrong. It's all good, and it can all help. But there's something transformative and substantively transformative about the secret place. And I neglected that. No more. No more. No more. I think the devil would love to get us distracted in a place where there is no reward. He'd love to get us distracted at the feet of a leadership book or at the feet of a class or something while neglecting the place where the reward is promised. And so if you've had that flipped in your life, 
for too long, I think now is a great time to flip it back. I don't have a clue what's gonna happen next, but I feel this so, so strongly. I don't know situations in this church, I don't know. Maybe you've, maybe you've seen family members walk away. Maybe, maybe you've been praying for a revival and you haven't seen it come to pass yet. Or maybe, maybe it breaks your heart to see young people walk out the door and never return. We've got to get in the secret place because there are way too many distractions, way too many voices, way too many things alluring people to go to places where there is no power, to go to places for answers that never really come, to, to short and empty promises that never fulfill the real desire of a human heart that is for God. And we've got to get into the secret place and we've got to invite people to come with us. We have, Jesus did it, shouldn't we? Come away with me to the secret place. Let's meet with God. Come away with me for a little bit to the wilderness, to the desolate place, to the place where we can't be distracted and let us sit at the feet of Jesus and commune with him. I want him to know me. I want him to know me and to know him. If he wants to know me, if I want him to know me, it's gotta be time. I gotta spend time with him. And if I truly want things to change and I truly desire a reward, a specific reward, I've got to find the secret place. Would you do it today? The altar's open. I've got nothing left to say. Let's meet the Lord in the secret place now and tomorrow and the next day and watch the situation change.